This episode of the Harper's Podcast is presented by Columbia Global Reports, publisher of The Politics of Our Time, Populism, Nationalism, and Socialism by John B. Judas. Hailed as a must-read by Politico, The Politics of Our Time offers a new analysis of major political issues that have shaped the last tumultuous decade. Available now everywhere books are sold. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. In No Exit, Jean-Paul Sartre, or Sartre, depending if you're from the Midwest or not, imagined hell as a room where, without the benefit of a mirror, the damned can only understand themselves through the perceptions of other people. Because the characters become so tied up in how others perceive them, they forget about their own ability to make choices, good or bad, about what kind of person they are or could be. Hence the play's most famous line, hell is other people. I realize I'm giving a bit of a sub spark note summary of the work, but it's conceit, which is enriched by the fact that there is an audience who are also watching and judging the characters, seems apt when thinking about social media celebrity and infamy. In the June issue of Harper's, Barrett Swanson writes about the five days he spent inside of Clubhouse for the Boys, a mansion where TikTok influencers in their late teens and early 20s lived for free, provided that they produced five videos a week. There, the psychic damage he saw them undergoing didn't simply arise from other people, but also from algorithms, misinformation, and corporate avarice. I spoke with Swanson about a lot of things, including TikTok, digital literacy, society, and... I, I promise you'll like it. Please smash that subscribe button if you haven't already, and don't forget to give us a five-star review. Please. So, first of all, what advice would you give to our listeners about gaining followers? Just sort of like any do's or don'ts you can think of? And I mean, there's no need to be comprehensive or anything. <laughs> oh my God. I, I mean, I have, I have zero advice. I can, tell you, I, I can tell you what the influencers at the house has told me, which is consistency um, posting. You know, I, I can't believe now I'm answering this, this question earnestly. Um, but yeah, like, um, they said consistency, like five to 10 times a day, they would post material and producing probably three times as much just recording drafts or whatever. One of them was describing it as like a video game. Like this person has that money. So there's like a kind of subtle competition taking place um, between them, even as much as they're supportive of one another, which I think is really interesting. But it's also like, that's a that's a desperately um, strange way to conceptualize your social life is like this kind of gamification of, of friendship. Um, and and clout chasing it's very strange yeah yeah and i mean early in the piece you you describe influencers as not celebrities but as quote prototypes of laborers in the new passion economy a glittering premonition of where the world seems to be heading and i think it's really crucial to define because you could say, oh, these are social media celebrities. But mm. what influencers are doing is so fundamentally different. And Hollywood is sort of trying to integrate 
influencers and these young, beautiful people who go viral into mm. movies, and it isn't really working that well. So could you sort of tease out more what the differences are between like a traditional celebrity and an influencer? Yeah, I mean, I was I was talking to one of the influencers um, named Brandon, and we were talking about the the strangeness of um, of their kind of daily life. It's almost as if the the that influencers perform all the calisthenics of celebrity without being uh, in possession or known for um, some of the superlative talents we might otherwise associate with traditional celebrities. So these people aren't known for their athletic skills or their, their acting capabilities or their athletic performances at all. And what they're known for essentially is being seen. Um, kind of this this kind of promiscuous self-disclosure, this kind of like ubiquity of content um, and making themselves av- available to be watched. And lots of them are trying to parlay that into different industries. I think, you know, one of the, one of the guys at the at clubhouse at FTB was trying to become a rock star, um, had, had, had kind of been working with a recording studio. Um, and yeah, obviously that transition, if, if, if you're not maybe uniquely gifted, um, it's hard enough uh, trying to enter those, those various professional disciplines, but um, if you're just trying to transfer, you know, your your clout from the social media arena um, for which you're known for just being, you know, present um, into some other arena where you have to be able to have some talent, it's much more difficult. Some, some, of, some of the influencers were legitimately um, talented and, and w- will likely have success in other realms or have already had um, success in other realms. Um, I'm thinking in particular of uh, Tessa Brooks. She's like a very accomplished dancer and has been trying to do some more acting. Um, so some of them, some of them will. But as um, you know, some of the the clubhouse staff members told me, a lot of them won't make it. You know, this is this is kind of um, a, a training ground or, or some in some sense. And the other thing that struck me about that quote is what you term the passion economy. I mean, part of it seems related to the fact that everyone, including doctors, get reviews now. I, even even my health insurance's website has star reviews for doctors. <laughs> well, I would I would say it's it's um, the monetization of of personality and figuring out ways of taking putative uh, taking one's interest in putatively creative quote-unquote creative industries and trying to to monetize that and what what often that um requires at least from my vantage is um the utilization of these multinational tech platforms in order to garner an audience a clientele and to um basically er- erode whatever thin difference still uh, exists between our kind of digital selves and our, our real selves um, and to, to to make ourselves economic agents uh, ever ever more increasingly and it's this is something you know and I, I mentioned this in, in the piece is that I, I myself feel 
acutely as a university professor. And I've, you know, I've basically felt it since I was an adjunct, um, whereby so much of my professional success seems to rely on student evaluations, which is, um, however unwittingly, creating an economic incentive for me to really kind of ingratiate myself with the students as opposed to just, you know, thinking how best can I serve them pedagogically. Um, you know, and that's that's a balance one has to strike. But um, yeah, it's 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 getting weird out there. <laughs> I don't I don't know how else to put it. It's it's frightening to me. It makes me sad. Um, it's it's unbelievably depleting to my own students who are thinking about entering the economy and trying to make heads or tails of how the direction, the professional direction they might take their lives. And um, I, I think it's something. The, the sort of psychic toll that takes is something that um, I, I don't I don't know that we're talking about enough. And I felt kind of compelled to think about it. Yeah, it's clear to see the line between those concerns about marketability and only understanding yourself through that lens and the subsequent mental anguish that comes out of that, um, how that relates to the illusion of democratization. Just like everything else that has to do with the internet, because people confuse democratization with an element of chance and the randomness of like a new technology. But that that mm. chance and randomness really only exists when it first starts out. And then, you know, you can see this with blogs. You could see this with Twitter mm. as the medium ages. Mm. these smaller people fall away and it becomes more standardized. You get Twitter stars, you get Andrew Sullivan, former blogger. And now it's like you, you know, you're following him into the next century. Right. So, right. but the thing about influencers is that at the end of the day, they, they are conventionally attractive people. Nobody can just do this it is again it's just replicating the very superficial aspects of society and mm -hmm. just you know you're watching a beautiful person do a little little dance and there's nothing new about that right you know there have always been dancers there have always been there are plenty of precursors to this i mean even rock stars you know like right. can the monkeys actually play their instruments or they just look good you know <laughs> Right. But the, with, with the influencer thing, it's just like you caught the collab house at this very interesting moment where these people really do believe that anyone can do it. And that's simply not true. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, when I when I first came across the collab house, let's see, it was, oh, gosh, it was it was it was right around the time that the pandemic started, weirdly enough. Mm -hmm. And I'm restraining myself from using puns about virality. But there were... <laughs> There, were, there was, yeah, you're welcome. Uh, there was like a Cambrian explosion of these these influencer houses and it seemed like, a, you know, a fortnight wouldn't go by where there wouldn't be a piece in the New York Times about a new collab house or a new cohort of well-complected youngsters who were shimmying and causing trouble in Los Angeles. And, and you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, apart from a certain you know, genetic advantages, namely nice cheek, <laughs> cheekbones or whatever, um, they really possessed no superlative talents. What the prerequisite for this kind of fame seemed to be was kind of an unswerving willingness to 
to put their self online, to be constantly posting content. And the sort of common denominator among all the, the, the influencers that I talked to is that they kept intoning um, like a mantra, the idea that they had to be consistent, that they were putting out five to 10 videos per day when they were first starting out. And so that struck me as kind of terribly interesting, this kind of thin difference between their virtual and visceral selves. So that ended up being a kind of preoccupation in the piece, like what what kind of effect does that have on one's psyche? But but you're right too. I mean, the algorithm, I mean, there there are these these sort of utopian ideas about TikTok or or basically any new social media where people are producing content that that there's some sort of democratic possibility that everyone can can have a kind of Horatio Alger's story. But you know, I would I would be picking up rumors among the influencers about, oh, well, TikTok, you know, they'll 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 bump up your video if you're willing to pay a certain fee. And and you're right too, like it's there's a kind of once you have a following, you're more likely to get your video pushed on the for you page. And and so the extent to which this is democratic is really, really kind of thin. Yeah, it's just um, a, t- a completely bonkers subculture. Right. And I mean, I've heard interviews with TikTok, people who have learned the algorithm or tried mm. to figure it out. And, mm. you know, obviously every couple of months or however long the company changes this mm. algorithm and mm. we can say whatever disparaging things we want about these dumb kids doing their TikTok, but it's like right. fundamentally it's the algorithm right the algorithm does not care what it shows you which is very clear when we come to talk when it comes to talking about like youtube radicalization right right it just wants you to stay on the platform yeah and when you stay on the platform, it's not just changing how you wish your body looked. It's doing a lot of other things mm. to you cognitively. And again, the the idea that this is somehow an algorithm is benevolent or benign mm. is completely false mm. in a way that has nothing to do with the business of this, which is again, mm. all these companies are owned by big tech firms there's tons of money there is you know chris and amir tons of money to do this mansion but the algorithm itself is psychotic yeah it's an odious intelligence and two i i don't yeah i don't think that these these influencers i mean sure some of the the content that they produce is inane and, and kind of you know in some cases misogynistic or just some cases like totally brain dead but i don't think that they're necessarily I, I think they're quite savvy, and I think they've, they've mm-hmm. for better or worse, learned learned how to navigate a platform that can be incredibly lucrative, and for doing very very little. I mean, their lives, my time with them, I, it was a, it was a you know a buffet of hedonism. <laughs> they just hung out and threw each other in the pool and played basketball and played video games, and some of it, you know, arguably could be construed as work. But it mostly just seemed like they learned how to monetize having fun. And, and it's hard to malign them for that. Exactly. <laughs> Far more important to malign a system and like a cultural logic that is asking of our young people to to indulge the, the crassest behavior possible in order to become famous. I mean, the weird thing, the weird thing about TikTok and particularly these influencers that I met was that 
absent any kind of, you know, sparkling talents, they were really just fulfilling this kind of template of celebrity. Like they, right. they were going through the calisthenics of what a, a celebrity would do and what a celebrity would wear and say without any of the, oh, intrinsic gifts that we might otherwise ascribe to people who, who, <laughs> would, who would warrant celebrity, you know, no, no outsized athleticism or, or musical talent or artistic inspiration, save Baron. I think Baron, one of the, one of the guys I met in the in the clubhouse FDB, he could he could really dance mm-hmm. and and was kind of infectiously good at, at dancing. So uh, who knows? Maybe maybe someone will pick him up to do to do backup dancing. He would be really happy to hear me say that. So um, good engagement. Good engagement with yeah, the subject. En- <laughs> oh, thanks. thanks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean. For Harper's now, I've done a men's retreat. I've I've been buried under rubble, and I have to say that this was this was the most psychologically taxing of the assignments. Yeah, I mean the photos of the mansion are kind of funny, <laughs> but also you see everywhere there's great lighting. Oh yeah, there is that room that is nothing but mirrors on the wall. Yeah. Yeah, And this idea, and again, I mean, I don't want to get too Freudian here, but the idea, you know, that, that this is this idealized space for reproducing your own image. Right. And that you were constantly consumed by, you know, am I looking good? Am I looking right? But also, you're always looking great. You're yeah. never looking bad. You were well, always I, having I, the best I, time imaginable. <laughs> I cer- I certainly wasn't. Um, I mean, I, I felt I felt pretty trollish around uh, these influencers. No. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, but no, I mean, you're right. They're, they're, the 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 mansion was was incredibly bizarre. It felt it felt very West Egg to me. It felt very you know like <laughs> it felt like there was all this kind of new money uh, accoutrements. There was for reasons that are still unclear to me. There was a, like a sixty-foot mural of George Washington in the living room, and his hand is kind of, kind of raised, as if as if beckoning the the nation to join him. And of course, <laughs> the, of course, the the influencers frequently set up their ring lights and tripods like right in front of the mural without really noticing that they were invoking this kind of American icon. Um, so the the dissonance between some of the things there, there were there were statues of Hercules and the Greek muses in the front front lawn, and and yeah, I mean I was just wandering around stupefied. Yeah, it's a little on the nose, I think. Yeah, right, exactly, exactly. It was it, it was almost like too too much to even draw attention to, but I think you're right. I mean, it's it's funny. They're always thinking about content. So there were three houses that I that I spent um, time at and kind of toggled between. And one of the houses was called Not a Content House, and that was the one built toward younger, a younger demographic. And one of the just really quickly, when you say younger demographic, right? What is yeah. the age range here? Oh gosh, I mean, it, it, by by the logic of TikTok, it seems like I'm talking about you know an audience in utero or something. Um, but they were, <laughs> I would say that those those influencers were trying to appeal to kind of maybe tweens. I I I don't know. I mean, nothing fucked up about that at all. <laughs> yeah, I know. A- aspects of this piece make, made me feel like a Tiger Beat reporter or something. So I I feel like. Yeah, they were they were appealing to like tweens, and then the the 
Clubhouse FTB or Clubhouse for the Boys, which is where I spent the majority of my time. These were these were a cohort of guys in their early twenties who had more of a frat vibe. So they were they were appealing to the undergrad crowd. Whereas Clubhouse Beverly Hills was they they described them as the grad school of the the Clubhouse <laughs> enterprise and uh, contained the, the the seasoned influencers. But anyway, so so I, I somehow on my my second to last day in LA um, got conscripted into going to Target with the Nada Content House, and so we're wandering around Target, and one of one of the influencers was uh, on the phone trying to adopt a French bulldog puppy, and and was doing this on speakerphone, so I was overhearing everything, and. She was trying to get this dog uh, flown into LAX, and immediately upon hearing that they could do it in a couple days, she was like, "Great, I can make a YouTube video out of it." Out of it. So there was really, there was really like no nook or cranny of of one's personal life that wasn't subject to possible digitization. That you know, I mean, they yeah. were they were ready and willing to kind of construe every blink and breath as as possible content. And I, who, you know, don't have much of a web presence, was just like kind of idiotically fascinated with it. Like I would just, I was just so curious about how how they'd come to a headspace that allowed them to do that so seamlessly. Yeah, the model for this, TikTok itself. There used to be this great thing called Vine. Mm. And it was six second videos. Yeah. Some of them were incredibly experimental. Mm. Some of them were very funny. Uh, I suggest you look up the Lemons compilation on YouTube. <laughs> Incredible. But it failed. Mm. And they were trying to do, you know, I remember reading stories about before, you know, they shuttered Vine, that they were inviting people to these mansions. There were also Vine influencers. And it failed. But TikTok, which strikes me as a less good version of Vine, mm. um, yeah. why did you ever get a sense of why the earlier technology failed or the earlier platform failed? And then why TikTok has occupied this space in uh, culture? That's a good question. I, I, I don't really I don't know enough about the the technology of Vine to, to speak intelligently about it. But my suspicion would be that there maybe there was something about TikTok really coming into its own during the first months of the pandemic when everyone mm. was lazing about the couch and had nothing to do but scroll and giggle. And so uh, it, it, it might be that. It may be, too, that this is just like the second iteration of, of a technology. And so advertisers have figured out how to monetize it in 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 more useful ways or more effective ways rather that would be my suspicion yeah and i guess i'll start asking more straightforward questions about the <laughs> pas but also i mean you alluded to recording acts that are arguably misogynist mm. and this also goes back to the beauty aspect of this because mm. as you write maddie who is Christopher mm -hmm. Romero's girlfriend, she got paid $60,000 for the chicken, like this chicken house ad, while yeah. Christopher only got $14,000. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Was that disparity because she has more followers or is it because it's a beautiful woman doing something as opposed to like sort of the inherent, the misogyny of elevating female beauty that kind of persists throughout Western culture? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, Maddie, last I checked, which was when I, when I was writing the piece, Maddie, I think, had a, 11 million followers on TikTok and Christopher, I want to say, had like 1.8, something like that. So I oh, really, she I, should dump him. What a loser. I, <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, it's hard because I, I spent a lot of time with those people and I, I just feel for, uh, you know, it's like I got, en- I got enlisted into the melodrama of those uh of those situations so poor Christopher who knows what's going on with him but yeah I mean it's astonishing to me how much money they were making I mean Maddie at one point kind of sheepishly confessed that she was making half a million dollars a month and so I just kind of looked at her and was just meditating on how many years it would take me teaching at the university to make that Barrett, you can't do that. You can't do that. <laughs> well, well, surely. I mean, I started, and I talk about this in the piece. I was like, well, maybe Chris and Amir will recruit me if I can prove my metal. <laughs> if I can prove my, you know, I have a background in singing and dancing from when I was a, a little kid. And I was like, maybe, maybe we can do this. Maybe I can use this as a springboard into a different career. That other loser professor does it. <laughs> Like you're saying, it's his own merch line, and he's just first of all super chuggy, just being like, "Oh, that f-. it's basically variants of that feel when," and it's like, yeah, yeah, "Dude, yeah. come on, that's so boring." Yeah, no, I'm still snagged on you saying that other loser professor, implying that I myself as am a loser professor, no! but I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy to cop to that. No, 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 that guy's a loser. I'm saying that guy's a loser because he's a professor who is just like <laughs> pandering that feel when uh you lie about your final paper you know like it's just because it's doing what all these other people are doing right by exposing every banal thing that they do where it's like this is relatable i see myself in this beautiful person i see myself in this side eye yeah yeah i don't know that guy's doing nothing special absolutely like it would be hard to say that his stuff is pyrotechnically interesting but i do think that the gesture the gesture that he's making is not dissimilar and i talked about this in the piece it's not dissimilar from the logic that informs professors who ingratiate themselves with their students out of economic motivations right that are scared about their job stability in a profession that has become incredibly precarious which by the way a way worse threat than cancel culture but we don't have to get into that Yeah, I mean, the the retailization of academe and particularly, you know, like I, I adjuncted for six years and it really seemed like there was no other barometer for my performance other than student evaluations. And so it's hard not to develop a certain internal rubric about how to how to relate to one's students that, you know, like you want them to like you yeah. fundamentally. And it, and it seemed, you know, that guy, I can't, Chris Sutherland, I think his name is that professor out of USC who has this pretty popular TikTok. It didn't, it didn't seem all that different. Like that, that effort to, to be relatable or whatever, it didn't seem that much different. And I feel like, well, I mean, I feel like that's the logic of social media generally. And 
yeah, it, it was despair-inducing. Yeah, uh, to me. Yeah. Well, speaking of despair, despair. And, <laughs> and self-awareness. Yeah. You know, in the piece you describe how Christopher Romero's fame didn't click for him until a group of girls like seized upon him at a Walmart and demanded selfies, and his mother was just like, I think rightly so, like what is going on right right utterly <laughs> utterly flummoxed yeah uh, the correct response my mom uh were you able to get a sense of how these influencers conceptualize their fame and i mean obviously they're concerned about how long they last how long they can yeah. keep doing this but how do they conceptualize the fame because reaching a couple hundred people is already it's incomprehensible, but they're in the millions. Yeah. I think, you know, someone like Maddie, who has 11 million followers on TikTok, she was really starting to, and, and I think her, her dad is a major league baseball player and her, her mom is a, is a model. Huh. <laughs> okay. A little, a little cheat code. <laughs> yeah. 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 Right. The democratization thing kind of falls apart. When, yeah. So I think she had a, like a, a more advanced way of or sophisticated way of conceptualizing her fame. But some of the, the newer celebrities who had just joined the house and maybe had like a million followers on TikTok, when I would ask them about their fame, they're like, oh, I'm not, I'm not famous. Or I, I would ask them like, what, what do you consider to be like a TikTok that does well? And they would say, oh, like, you know, like a hundred thousand likes, a million views or something like that. And I was like, well, how does that make you feel like that, that level of fame or exposure? And they're like, oh, I, I don't, you, you think that's famous, huh? So I was, I was chastened, <laughs> um, you know, just like this writer from the Midwest. And like, well, you know, like, I don't even have a social media. So, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that they're operating in a world where the David Dobricks or the Kylie Jenners of the world are kind of the, the pantheon. And so they're the, they're the little fish. But I, you know, I think a lot of them, there were a lot of them who had very serious professional ambitions of using this, this, whatever relative celebrity that they've, they fostered to, to enter into other professions. Mm -hmm. And then some who were just kind of along for the ride and happy to, you know, make, you know, 10 grand a month uh, doing clothes ads and then figuring out the next step as they go with a kind of devil may care insouciance. So it, it kind of, it ran the gamut. The number of, the number of them that will actually turn this into a long-term career, I think is very, very small. And so I, I found myself just, you know, when they would, you know, cause they were hung over a lot of the time um, <laughs> when they would take their naps and I would be alone, I would just be thinking about, you know, sitting out by the pool, just being like, you know, what are these kids, what are they going to do in 10 years? A lot of them have, issued university have kind of moved across the country and trying to make heads or tails of of this influencer cottage industry and it was just like what is going to happen to these kids and some of them you know like 15 16 you know doing a quote-unquote online school for an hour a day in the morning and then making content until two and then <sighs> yeah i mean real real head clutching stuff so sort of extending this idea of fame there's a very funny part where you describe how the TikTokers really don't 
know how to deal with reporters. Mm -hmm. And um, you you saw that you saw this as evidence that the clubhouse really isn't invested in their futures or their well-being. Could it also be evidence that the clubhouse owners don't think of long form magazine writing as as and in any way influential? Just as the way the, these kids don't see them as famous, the, the the owners are seeing what journalism is, which, again, a lot of the TikTokers have outright contempt for, uh, <laughs> um, uh-huh. leaving aside even, you know, print magazines, mainstream media are just not in their thoughts. These are not touching their world. Well, I mean... I took umbrage to a metaphor that the clubhouse owners use to describe themselves, which is an influencer university. And, you know, as a university professor, I was like, oh, oh, really? Because these kids were dropping out of college and and going to this influencer university or whatever. Classic Silicon Valley thing. Drop out of college. Don't go to college. (laughs) Right. Come to this surrogate. And so presumably when you hear influencer university, you think, okay, there's going to be, you know, I wasn't expecting like grad seminars on like PR and like how, you know, how to do, how to do an interview or anything, but at least some sort of cursory preface and like, here's how you talk to a journalist, you know, here's what you say when you want something off the record, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That, that seemed to be an indication to me that they, they didn't much care. The extent to which they're worried about long form magazine writers coming in and doing a piece and, or that, it, you know, that they're impermeable to that kind of criticism. I mean, I, I don't really think they're going to care about my piece. I, you know, I, I, I just don't. But too long, too long. Dinner, right? like, <laughs> what does this word mean? Um, wait, what, wait, is there, there an audio yeah. version I can listen to? What is <laughs> right. <this>? Right. <laughs> But, you know, it's funny, they they were worried about coverage to the extent that brands would be worried about how the influencers were being depicted, right? That the, right. the brands would read something and be like, oh, they're not brand friendly or they're, you know, they're not, they're not fit to uh, shill for our products or whatever. And, you know, a lot of them had this, this overwhelming fear of Taylor Lorenz, the New York Times uh, tech reporter for for that reason because of, of some of the the brand the fallout with brands after pieces of hers had had been published i mean and presumably they didn't read any of any of my pieces before saying that i could come to the house because they might have known that you know i wasn't going to write a puff piece you predict in a kind of like a tongue-in-cheek way but also in a way that is totally plausible that newspapers will eventually become collab houses in April, Vanity Fair editor John Kelly announced plans to launch a digital publication called Heat Media that sounds a lot like that, which is a less centralized newsroom where the emphasis would be on helping writers build their personal brands again. Oh, no, really? I got it. I got to look in. That's oh, I know, bad news. Oh, oh, writers are endlessly okay. replaceable. But they but these guys at Heat Media they'd be working on their personal brands and the writers yeah. would take a cut of the revenue their content generates. So, so an obvious, but an important question, what is the difference between a house full of influencers and an actual newsroom? I don't know anymore. I mean, I really, <laughs> Oh no. 
I I don't know. I don't know. I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, in the piece, it was it was somewhat tongue in cheek, but I don't I don't know. There is a terminus to this logic, and I I don't think that we're far away from um, a media landscape that relies increasingly on personalities and and followings to dictate, dare I say, or use a word like prestige in the culture, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I certainly feel, because I I don't use social media, I feel pretty, ah, gosh, marginal. I mean, I live in the Midwest. I, you know, don't have a social media presence. Like, it's, it's real. And I, I don't understand emotionally how, how people do it, how people can do those things simultaneously. But yeah, I, I really, I really don't know. <laughs> I wish I had a better answer for you aside from just being like kind of concerned and, and um, biting my nails about it. Well, <laughs> what do you, what do you think? What do you think? Do you think we're, do you think that's plausible? Do you think that we're headed toward that? I mean, certainly Substack seems, again, it felt, it feels like, you know, there were, there were these people speaking with evangelistic fervor about like, oh, maybe this kind of disruption will be really good for journalism, et cetera, no. et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> Right. But now, right. Like it's, it's becoming swiftly apparent that that's, that's going to be e- e- egregious and abysmal. So, yeah, I mean, I guess I'm I'm curious to hear what you think. I mean, do you think that, that that's going to become kind of the standard? I mean, I can't help but... Because <laughs> this was actually related to the question I was going to ask after this. Mm. Because again, the idea that, you know, you're not looking at the output. You're looking at the writer. The writer is a personality. You like, yeah. even if what they're putting out is unedited, doggerel, uh, or just outright bad logic, you know, all of yeah. the things that I don't know an editor could help you avoid in a traditional media structure. Yeah. And not And I mean, again, I'm not going to act like the traditional media structure is deeply flawed for right. you know, their structural inequalities, the level of censorship that has gone on. I don't know. Uh, maybe people don't like mainstream media because of the way the Iraq war was handled. I get that. Right, right. Uh, but it, the animus is growing. And I don't think, you know, I understand that. I am sympathetic to that argument. Media is condensing. It is becoming more, it's paying more attention to student reviews, let's say. Uh, and <laughs> Twitter is full of student reviews, as yeah. is Facebook. And again, there's, I mean, I don't People people have a right not to trust the, the mainstream media. But I don't think that going to one person, um, mm-hmm. as, as good as Glenn Greenwald was, breaking some really important stories, mm-hmm. if you only go to him for his opinion on current events now, mm-hmm. that's a problem. Mm-hmm. That's a problem. That's That's just as bad as it was when people were only watching the daily show right right and the daily show could wiggle out of any convert you know like any sort of criticism by being like this is comedy it's not being used as comedy right so media i think it is the they are going to kind of merge unless there is some sort of intervention by the government where it's like Mm -hmm. okay we have a real problem with information. There is a surfeit of information going around Mm -hmm. and we need to make sure that the public 
that we maintain the fabric of society, that there is, you know, some sort of protection mm. from bad information. But also that becomes a problem because it's like, well, New York Times has an agenda. When mm -hmm. have they ever really, you know, the first, the first uh, article I remember reading about Occupy Wall Street from them was that mm -hmm. people in Tribeca couldn't push their baby carriages around the park because there were all these smelly people mm -hmm. there. Oh you know, they, again, I'm, 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 not, I'm not certain if that was the first, but that's the first one I remember. Mm -hmm. Is that really fair to the the movement? Um, and again, the way Occupy was treated by the media is just like, what do right. they want? Well, it's right. you go talk to any of them, it's really clear what they want. Right. And right. so the like who gets to mediate and right. who gets to be the reliable source, that's a really hard question. But we also yeah. cannot just continue to atomize ourselves and go to like the star reporter. We can't right. do that. It's it's it's, right. it's 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 deadly. Yeah. And kind of cartwheeling back to our anxieties about academia, I mean, I will say that one of the the virtue and why I'm, you know, obviously so committed to it as as a working professor, is that at least that's the place where people are are fostering and 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 propagating good habits of media literacy and being yeah. able to being able to assess sources. And increasingly, that feels like one of the, the maybe the paramount paramount skill that that I'm at least imparting to my students, right. which was why it was kind of staggeringly funny that when I went to these TikTok houses, you know, they're, they're telling me about how TikTok is better than mainstream news. And, mm -hmm. uh, and then, and thereupon telling me about conspiracy theories that they've, they've since subscribed to, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I also echo your concern about the media literacy, but I also think there's a real lack of visual literacy. This yeah. is not something that yeah. is taught. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I mean, as a person who studied film, I see it all the time where what lenses do to faces, what mm. lighting does to faces, mm. how you can kind of angle your body, how images when frozen can alter, you know, Rodney King. Part of right. why that verdict came in the way it did is because they froze, they took a still, they slowed down the footage. And they made it seem like he was threatening them, that he was going to strike mm -hmm. them. And there was no there was no concept that it's like, okay, so this is highly zoomed in. This is on a video camera. The the perspective is forced. Mm -hmm. And so this man being brutally beaten, and I mean, I I think you can say this with, you know, cell phone footage of cops. Right. You can kind of make these arguments that it's like, well, actually, no, it's this instead, and that. The, right. This interpretation aligns with what I think. Oh, what was happening before then? And I right. think sometimes it's Valitax. Okay, what was happening before then? But also the fact that this, it, it's its really tricky. It's so tricky. And and two, I mean, I feel like a post-2020 election, we, there, there's, I don't know, there's a, a relative calm. But I think, you know, with the... the everybody's, tired. Yeah, everybody's tired. Everybody's <laughs> tired. But you, you, I think you wait. <laughs> I think 2024 yeah. is going to be, I mean, the, the arrival of deep fakes has got me real worried about the epistemological crisis in the, this country. And, and you're yes. speaking to visual literacy, too. I just, I feel very scared. No, I mean, because these tech companies have far more control over our lives than the government does. Oh, yeah. And one party has adopted a very narrow 
stupid, I'm going to say, critique of the tech companies that I'm yeah. being shadow banned. Oh. Yeah, right. And it's right. like, that's not that's not even what is going on, dude. Come, right, but, right. but they're, because they're in bed with big business, so it's like oh, there's sure. not going to be a legitimate critique. There's not going to be a legitimate sort of. I mean, there are bipartisan efforts to regulate these things, but it's not happening fast enough. And these right. things, these things have long term consequences, not just politically, uh, socially. You know, the fact that uh, people saw masks as a political issue right that they saw the coronavirus as uh something that wasn't true and that you know like the tiktokers said like oh this keeps getting deleted that must mean they don't want you to know <laughs> and it's right. like you know on a some certain level i am sympathetic to that because there have been plenty of things have that have been quote deleted uh right. banned books other pieces of art that have been taken out of public view Inf crucial information about WMDs. I'm sorry. I'm a millennial. <laughs> like the defining moment that shaped my politics was the oh, Iraq no, yeah. War. Totally, totally. So yeah. okay. Colin Powell at the UN. I mean, that was oh, that was the thing. Yeah, God. I just remember my yeah my mind exploding. I mean, yeah. but even even beyond sort of the deprivations of thought that go into sort of being susceptible to justifications like something getting deleted and therefore it must be legitimate i i find myself more concerned just because i'm dealing with it every day with the sort of emotional and psychological effects that it's having on my students people people just i mean i mean uh, wearyingly depressed yeah that was a really sad part of the piece and i know um again because of the way social media feeds work, people are going to be like, oh, these goddamn snowflakes. But it's horrifying. It's so oh, yeah. sad that it's like you are in college and this is supposed to be like the most fun part of your life when you are mm. forming yourself as an adult where you are learning all these new skills educationally, socially, like how to how to live with a roommate, how to mm -hmm. drink responsibly, how to like all this stuff. And it's just like, they're so sad, and I, why? Why are they so sad? Well, I mean, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna sound like John Edwards or something, but I, I do <laughs> think that that is the, the Puritan, not the, the the erstwhile politician from North Carolina. I think um, they've been tutored in an idea about what it means to be a person that involves professionalization and, and profit. They're they're asked to mm -hmm. see themselves as workers, as fundamentally as workers who should be um, cultivating marketable skill sets. And they are trained every day, not only in school, but also on social media to see their lives as fundamentally about followings. And I, I think that that's a, an especially bleak rubric by which to define your value as a person. But I, I think they're doing it. And it's so seamlessly integrated into their, into their every every breath that, that 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 it can't help but but affect them i mean the the moment i talk about it in the pieces uh, the student telling me that during quarantine he was basically living a life of evasion he was yeah. um you know spending his quarantine watching prestige television and scrolling through Insta instagram and tiktok for hours a day and it made him really sad mm -hmm. but the real sad thing about it was that he'd been doing something similar pretty much before the pandemic too and so I I have increasingly come to think about my job, at least as a professor, and maybe to some extent too as a writer, as 
trying to draw the parameters of like a different rubric of thinking about what it means to be a person and what it means to be present for other people and because sort of these these very gooey ideas but but I think they're really important and it's something that I've come to out of kind of an emergency of these students continually showing up in my office anxious in ways they cannot explain and sad in ways they cannot talk about and I don't I don't think it has anything to do with Gen Z snowflakes or anything like that I think that that's uh, bogus I think it's because we've created a digital environment in which fundamentally they're meant to see their value as as based upon their professional skills and their followings which is just real bleak yeah um and you allude to this class that you teach which deals with these subjects and i was curious what's on the syllabus (laughs) i mean i'm literally i'm curious and like a key text for me is jonah peretti's article titled capitalism and schizophrenia contemporary mm-hmm. visual culture and the acceleration of identity formation slash disillusion which is this combination of frederick jameson with uh deleuze and guattari and again schizophrenia is in the it's not in a literal sense it's in the yeah. deleuzean guattari and sounds it begins with mtv which is you know again totally different bands different styles of music different images the randomness of that first starts scrambling again identities and then now because everything is so randomized by the internet our personal identities are in flux Mm -hmm. but capitalism capitalism and ourselves just on a personal level we need to recover those and create Mm -hmm. new identities and Mm -hmm. for capitalism that's so we can consume more you know Mm -hmm. and for us, it's so that we cannot feel uh, terrified and scared and anxious. Um, right. And so this, you know, and visual culture, it's kind of resolves these things. So it's like, and again, Jonah Peretti is the CEO and founder of BuzzFeed. He is the mm. person who invented the things kids who went to Bible camps in the 90s will re- recognize. Like that formulation of identity. And BuzzFeed is nothing but what he wrote in this paper, where there's just like these niche identities you didn't realize you know existed until you go there and you're like, oh, yeah, I do remember that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Yeah. that is, this is relatable. You know, and then you just move on to the next thing. (laughs) And again, it's totally destabilizing, a totally destabilizing way to think of yourself. But yeah. it, uh, I don't know, buku dollars. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to chase down that text because I, I have not read. It. I've I've heard it talked about. In fact, in fact, a friend was just telling me about um, Deleuze's ideas about schizophrenia. Um, oh, what's on my syllabus? So this is a class that I came up with a long time ago, 2010 maybe. And I remember, you know, I did just casually talking about this class with my friends. There, there was a comparison made between me and the Greg Kinnear character and You've Got Mail, <laughs> which I don't know if you remember, but he was like this lidical character who was railing against, you know, big box bookstores and the, the rise of the internet and how it was going to, the, the ebooks were going to wipe out traditional books. So I w- it was a disparaging assessment of, of me and my views on technology. Uh, no, 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 that guy was right. And also the Unabomber was kind of right if you think about it. Not great, <laughs> oh but it's true. 
there's that there's that Joan Didion piece about in the New York Review of Books about that, and yeah. I think she took some flack for basically saying something similar. But yeah, no, I mean, I what's on that syllabus? It the, the problem is that yeah, I came up with it. It's a first. It's for first year students. So came up with it in 2010. So a lot of the the texts are kind of outdated, or like I'm constantly having to you know, put, put new stuff and update things. But Jaron, Jaron Lehner's book, uh, You Are Not a Gadget is, mm-hmm. is on there. And I think it's a good distillation of at least some of the, the embedded philosophies in, in some of these digital technologies and how they're affecting us. I teach stuff from Walter Benjamin. I teach the recent congressional hearing with, um, you know, our, our dark overlords of the internet. Um, <laughs> So that kind of stuff. I mean, it changes. I, I taught Ray Kurzweil's books about the singularity, yeah. which the students get. Yeah, I know. They get all sorts of bent out of shape about that. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I, I cannot tell you how many research papers I've read about the singularity. <laughs> Nanotechnologies, they get real, real excited about that. But yeah, that's that's the class. And the students, it's funny. When I first started teaching it, they regarded me as as a kind of geriatric internally geriatric like I was just hobbling around with a walker or whatever because they had far more optimism about social media and this you know this is back in 2010 and 11 but now I think they're really receptive to it and they're really scared and and they're trying to understand it which is good I mean that's that's what what you want is is them to marshal the resources in themselves to be to be aware of how this stuff is affecting them not only as agents in neoliberal capitalism but also is just humans with with complex sensitive emotions yeah it's a really important thing to learn and it is a revelation because as you note these are people who grew up with iphones and ipads probably before they could speak oh yeah oh yeah and they've been subjected to this stuff and not really given any sort of guidance meaningful guidance on how to critically think about this and you know if the only thing you're being told is that you know like your parents are like i'm gonna take away your iphone if you don't start acting better or that you know (laughs) know, like like, a true a true deprivation a true deprivation (laughs) or you know you're in your sex ed class and there's a section on revenge porn Uh and like, don't take nude selfies and send them to somebody. It's going to end badly. If those are the major sort of guideposts that you're being given about how to use this stuff, that's a real problem. And it creates mm. a situation where you know that on some level, this this thing is like giving you little serotonin hits, but it's also making right. you feel terrible. <laughs> for a lot of reasons, you know? Right. Oh, well, I, I would I would argue, too, that I don't think it's just the younger generation that needs to be tutored in this. No! In this sort of, yeah, it's like, yeah, you know, some of my older relatives, I, 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 they're, they're really they're far. They would be worse, I have to say. I remember my aunt, when I was growing up, she's always like, don't believe everything you see on TV. <laughs> she loved saying that. She right. loved saying that. And she's like, oh, Violet, don't watch too much TV. You know, you should really be reading books. And... I don't know, that generation really does not know how to handle yeah. the fact that there are multiple generations struggling with this basic literacy problem. Mm-hmm. That's why it's reshaping society 
It's that's or why young. you know, like the, the the amount of stories that you hear about um, somebody who they are having Thanksgiving alone because their son or daughter, whoever, the rest of their family doesn't believe in QAnon. Mm-hmm. And they can't stand to be around them anymore. Right. And, you know, this is probably someone who grew up grew up being taught, oh, don't talk about politics at the dinner table. Right. But the, because right. this is a satanic cult uh, that's right. eating children, blood libel uh, level thing, they can't right. stand, they can't stand to be around people who don't believe in it. And that's right. horrifying. And the deaths of despair deaths of loneliness Mm. like there's going to be so much more of that and it it does not need to exist because when you have the more you talk with somebody the more you interact with people facelessly online the more chance there is for conflict and it's it's you know it's really it's it's so unnecessary but of course it won't stop because (laughs) i don't know like Eight ghouls in Silicon Valley are like, uh, I need a new mansion. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. They are rather ghoulish, aren't they? Yeah. 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 Good God. <laughs> well, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask this last question, but I think we can end it with they are rather ghoulish, aren't they? Um, <laughs> that's kind of a perfect Please. <laughs> Yeah. Um, The last thing I wanted to ask you, and again, this relates to the media question, the influencer marketing industry already accounts for roughly 15% of total global ad spends. So that's huge. Huge. And media really needs the advertising dollars, even though advertising is never going to be what it was in the pre-internet era. There's been a good deal of skepticism about even the current ads that we have now, like targeted ads, do those actually right. work despite the enormous amounts of money advertisers spend on them? So it seems worth asking, did you come across any strong evidence that all of this money spent on uh, reenacting Lady and the Tramp but with fried <laughs> chicken is money well spent? Or have advertisers no. just like fallen prey to like the influencer spell? I think so. I mean, I think they're sort of staggeringly inefficacious. And to, <laughs> like, what was so funny is that the the influencers they were just baffled. Like, they just couldn't believe their good fortune that someone would be willing to pay them like sixty grand for a ten second video. But I think you know they they have the money to do it, so why not do it? I mean, regardless, and the the eyeballs are there. I mean, they mm-hmm. are they are reaching a viewership. Whether I mean, there I think. I'm trying to remember one of the talent managers was saying that the turnout, the conversion rate for clothing ads on TikTok was actually pretty good. Mm-hmm. Well, also, I would say the beauty stuff like, yeah, beauty, skin- beauty, self-care stuff. The wellness stuff is just, yeah. Well, wellness stuff. Let's just be let's be honest here. Wellness is just eating disorders rebranded as wellness, yeah. <laughs> like the, the, so, yeah. the, the collagen stuff. Oh, all of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. The goopification of, uh, <laughs> yeah. But I, you're right. I mean, I don't, I don't think it's money well spent. I mean, certainly, certainly not based upon, you know, just the, the dancing I saw, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is, it, I mean, again, we were, we're sort of going back to this question of literacy and mm. for, for all of the ills, there mm. seems to be 
an increasing resistance or understanding that ads are ads and that you you know you shouldn't just buy something because someone who looks good who clearly does not use the product (laughs) says that it's good using waist strainers the the idea that women are tight lacing once again in order to attain a certain shape damaging their internal organs damaging their digestion again potentially potentially there aren't any uh real new ideas they just serve ideas that get added on to them i think brian you know said that (laughs) yeah i mean this is the thing that i always think about too when people start talking about oh like the utopian or revolutionary potential of a thing like tiktok and it could be this like you know this grassroots political force etc and and maybe you know it does have some some effect on the culture. I mean, certainly that Trump rally in Oklahoma was it was was torpedoed because of the TikTokers. But it's like really messed up that people thought that was like this huge victory. Right. Right. Like it's just like okay, so now just everyone is as petty and stupid as Donald Trump, even though you hate him, you're just like him now. Great job. <laughs> I mean, the platform, you know, it, it's not necessarily, the platform is also, you know, hosting Chipotle and American Eagle yeah. and, and yeah, like monetizing viewership. So like, it's just, I just, I don't, I don't share the same optimism about these things. No. Um, and you yeah. should always be skeptical of things you like. That's always a yeah. good idea. <laughs> exactly. No matter what it is. Yeah, right. I wanted to ask, final question. Now that things are opening up in the U.S., and again, this is we're recording this the day after we got the rather confusing news from the CDC that you can (laughs) just take off your mask if you're fully vaccinated. Do you feel like now, because there's going to be this kind of opening up and people are going to be able to go outside again and people have the ability, but not necessarily the drive, to divorce themselves from devices and kind of connect Mm. in person again and there might be again might be a renaissance of people really spending time with each other in a way that they haven't in decades so if that renaissance happens could tiktok survive or is it just gonna go the way of vine or chat roulette or any of you know a billion other uh, random platforms that i remember yeah I I would suspect that there's an expiration date on TikTok. I don't know if it necessarily coincides with the the reopening or our general uh, defrosting as a culture. But like, <laughs> but like, a lot I, of people, you know, a lot of people are like, I don't want to go back. I'm happy. Right. I'm happy in my you know French Terry joggers and yeah. I mean, like, I I don't know. I mean, I think that if it does go by the wayside something else will replace it. And I think that we've become too habituated to documenting ourselves online and, and yeah. that that's become a kind of reflex or aptitude for for many of us that, that even if it's not TikTok, there will, and even if we are indeed venturing out into the world, you know, the, the, the appendage of the, of the phone will be there and the impulse to, to self-document, which is not necessarily a bad one, will be there by maybe putting it on a platform that's profiting off the traffic that that self-documentation gets. That's, that's the thing where, that's the moment where things get hairy, at least for me. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Barrett. 
Oh gosh, thank you. This is so fun. I mean, it's no, like the third time we've talked in what sixteen months or something. I know. <laughs> third time guest, you should be receiving a pewter serving tray tea service <laughs> very soon. Of course, we do things very old school at Harper's. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, right. I, 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 I was hoping, like you know, uh, a blazer or something. But I'll take the, <laughs> I'll take the, 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 the serving tray. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save 